In Matthew 15, verse 21, scriptures say that Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. And the verb tense is that she was crying over and over and over again. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. How many of you have read through this passage before? I'm just curious. It's about three-quarters of the people in here. How many of you didn't want to linger over it? It's a little, it's a little out of the ordinary. If I'm being honest, when I read this, sometimes I'm like, and forgive me if this offends you, but I'm like, Jesus, you can't do that. That's, there's something in my flesh that wants to correct the perfect sinless son of God because of his interaction, his communication with this woman who was just asking to be helped. But there's a reason for this. And all of us are going to go through repeated seasons where everything we are doing before the Lord, we're doing it according to Scripture. We're seeking Him. We're calling out to Him. We're desperate. We're needing Him to move into something that's beyond our control or above our heads. And yet there are times, undeniably, where the Lord does not seem to be paying a lick of attention to what we're saying. There are times where we needed Him to move five minutes ago, and it seems like He is just ignoring us. There are even more difficult times where we are doing everything by pouring out our heart and vulnerability and absolute dependence on him. And what we're hearing back is either silence, which he did with this woman, or it even seems to be a communication of no because we're needing him to move. We're praying it over and over and he's just not doing anything. And so my question to us tonight, and this is, this is really for believers tonight. This is not, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you can learn something from this, but I am really going from, for the jugular tonight uh, as, as a brother to brothers and sisters saying, what do we do in times like that? Because your options are limited. When God's not answering your prayers with an affirmation, a yes, when God doesn't bring the breakthrough, when he hasn't brought the healing, when the provision didn't come in like the miracle oil and meal of, of the book of the kings and, and the widow, when, when, when the answer for the loved one to be rescued or saved, and none of it's happening, I'm going to tell you something. If you pretend that that's not stretching you in your spirit, then I don't think you're being honest with yourself. Because we live in the tension between the sovereign God of heaven, in whose hand is the control of everything that happens in heaven and earth. We live between that tension and the realization that we have a part to play in asking, seeking, knocking, and receiving. And so where does this, where does this leave us at times? It leaves us in a very similar position to a woman who by the end of the conversation with Jesus, Jesus makes a, dis a, a statement over her life and her faith that he only makes about one other person in all of the scripture. And so let's look at the verses tonight. I don't think that they're over our heads, but I do think they're like a bud that needs to be blossomed if we're going to smell the fragrance of what's going on in this passage. And so hopefully tonight the Lord will open that up. Uh, the, really the focus tonight is, about, is on this lady. She's you, she's me. We're really just going to put ourselves in her place tonight, and let's learn along with her. I call her, first of all, in verses 21 and 22, a woman with a desperate heart. She is a woman with a desperate heart, and here's the breakdown of that. First of all, she was inwardly burdened. 
The Bible says that as Jesus was coming away, he had been butting heads with the Pharisees, or they had been trying to butt heads with him. And Jesus leaves them and where they were, and he withdraws to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And the Bible says here, Matthew introduces this statement. He says, behold. Now, when you see that in the scripture, you're literally being told, stop, look, and listen. It's like, check this out. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and she was crying repeatedly, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. We'll get to the rest of what she was saying in a moment. But this is the scene. Jesus has been really dogged by the Pharisees and the religious people and the leaders and they're trying to control him and they're getting all up in his face about how he's not keeping their rules and stuff. And in the passage of the verses before, it's almost as if Jesus is just done with that. And so he walks away and you know what he does? He moves into Gentile territory. He's going northwest from where he was, and he moves into this area. It's in modern-day Lebanon, but it's uh, here in the Bible it's called um, in the region of uh, Tyre and Sidon. And so he moves up in there because he knows these religious hypocrites will not follow him into a gross Gentile territory. So it's kind of like, I don't know if they're going to follow me, but I know one place they're likely not to follow me, and I'm going straight there. And so he goes about 25, 35 miles northwest, and he enters into this uh, this, uh, land of the Gentiles. Now you need to understand something. If you're new to your Bible and you don't know the history between Jews and Gentiles, it was a religious hostility. It was a racial hostility. It was a cultural hostility. It, it, it would have made uh, the, the southern part of the United States in the 1950s and 60s and the racial tension pales in comparison to the ongoing hostilities between the Jews and the Gentiles. Frankly, they hated each other. The Jews were looked at them as defiled and unclean and distanced from God, and the Gentiles looked at the Jews as just absolute weirdos and, and standoffish with all their rituals and all their monotheism. And so Jesus goes up into this territory, and the Bible says that a Canaanite woman comes out. Now, if you know anything about your, your Bible history, the Canaanites were the historical vicious enemies of the Jews. And so these are the descendant of the enemies of the Jews meeting the king of the Jews. This woman descended from the enemies of the Lord and the Lord himself coming into her neck of the woods. Now, we have no idea how she heard about Jesus. We have no idea how she's heard about the Messiah, but apparently the testimony of Jesus and his healings and his miracles and his preachings and the fact that he didn't play the game of the the religious Jews at that time, that had gotten out and abroad. And so when he comes into the town, somehow this lady knows who he is and she knows what he can do. And immediately she begins to scream. Now, desperate mothers, you know just what kind of emotion and intensity you feel when you can't help your child. And we're going to find out this child had more than physical problems. The physical problems aren't really mentioned. It is a deep-seated spiritual problem typified by the phrase demonically oppressed. And so this family has been invaded by evil. There is an active demonic presence and stronghold in the family. And as demons will do, they single out the weakest member of the family and they go for that child in this case. And this lady is down to her last moment. She can do nothing. So she sees Jesus and she's crying out repeatedly, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. I mentioned when we were reading it that the imperfect tense in the Greek indicates that she was just saying it over and over and over again. Uh, I, I appreciate her love. I appreciate her intensity. I appreciate her relentlessness. She has a deep need that she can't meet and she's coming to Jesus with it. Have you ever been there? Sure we have. Well, let's go further into it. She was inwardly uh, burdened, but in order to gain an audience with Jesus, she does what a lot of us do, and I call this she was religiously borrowing. I'm going to explain that in a minute. She she calls him by two, two terms. She calls him Lord, and then she calls him Son of David. Now, Lord, when you see that in the New Testament as it's written like that, it could mean something as simple as the word sir. It's a term of politeness. It's a term of respect. Sometimes it can mean more than that. Curios, it could mean the Lord, but we don't know it by that. But the second term lets us know that she knows enough about the Jews' religion to try to slip in under the radar. Now, she's a Gentile. She's got no messianic claims, no claims to the covenant of the Jews, and yet she employs the term son of David. 
She recognized that the the Jews' religion said a descendant of David would sit on the throne and be the king of Israel. And so she is appealing to Jesus with a Jewish messianic term. But the problem is, is she is cut off from those covenants because she's not a Jew, she's a Gentile. And so she is an outcast, and yet she's doing anything she can do to try to ingratiate herself to Jesus. And so she's using the jargon. And so, listen, I'm going to tell you something. We testify in this. I remember when I was a lost church member. I was an individual who grew up in the church, and I prayed the prayer, and I got dunked in the baptistry, and uh, they told me I was going to heaven, yet I lived like hell. And I don't mean that flippantly. I lived like hell. I lived like the devil. And yet I, I was a deceived church member, but I remember any time I'd get in trouble, Anytime I'd be horribly hung over or, or just messed up because of the lifestyle I was living, I would try to use all the church terms that I had learned as a kid. I'd throw in a couple of these and thou's, I'd open my Bible and I'd, I'd quote some Proverbs and I'd tell God I'm never going to do this again. And I would try to come in under the radar just for God to meet my need. And the fact of the matter is I didn't even have any foundation to be talking to him. Because the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm 66, 18 says, if you cherish sin in your heart, the Lord's not listening to your prayers. The first prayer he hears from any of us is a prayer of repentance and forsaking our sin. And I wasn't willing to do that. She had not done that yet. But she knew some terminology, but she was borrowing from religion. I want to just tell you this. God is not impressed with our, our, our King's English, our these, our thou's. Are all of our theological terms. One of the graduating moments of prayer is when you're realizing you can talk to the Lord in the same language you talk to each other with, providing you have a clean mouth. Amen. So you can go to the Lord and you don't have to wrap it up in 1611 King James English. You actually get to talk to him as a 21st century American. If you speak English, you speak English. If you speak a different tongue, you speak that. But you can go to the Lord with no pretense, not having to borrow religion. She didn't do that. She was a Gentile. She had no right, no ability to engage him with a messianic title, but that was the only route she knew to go. And so she was religiously borrowing. She was inwardly burdened. And here in verse 22 at the end, you're going to see why all of this, because she was circumstantially broken. Her life's circumstances had brought her to the point of devastation. And it's summed up in the phrase where she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. I don't want to run too far down this rabbit trail because I don't have time. But you need to understand that uh, in, in, as, a, as a Canaanite, as a Gentile, part of the paganism that would have flavored her whole life, her family, her religious expression, her childhood, now her adulthood, her motherhood, is they worshiped a lot of false gods. It could have been anything. There were so many of them. Who knows which one she bowed down before. But a lot of the worship of the Canaanite gods historically involved things such as child butchery, uh, a lot of uh, horrible things that probably just really aren't fit to be spoken tonight. We have little ears in here. But a lot of things that went on that were violent, that were sensual to the core, uh, both in the hetero and the, the other one. I'm trying to regard the small ones that are in here tonight. And so there was a lot of um, depravity associated with Canaanite worship. And somewhere in the mix of this being, to whatever degree it was at work in her family, her, the, the door was open to darkness. And through that open door of pagan worship moved in an intentional demon into the family and seized the girl. Now this Canaanite mother knew enough about spiritual things to recognize my daughter's not just behaving badly. My daughter's not just depressed. My daughter's not just sick. My daughter's not just acting out or whatever the manifestation might have been. We're not told here. There was something about the, the daughter's life that registered with the mother. And the mother didn't simply say, my daughter's being demonized. She said, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. I don't know when the last time any of us really gave any consideration to the reality that as the same book that pre preaches to us the love, the power, the grace, the mercy, and the goodness of God is the same book that talks to us about the darkness, the rage, the hatred, and the violence of Satan and his demons. And so if we're going to shout hallelujah to the reality of God's goodness, we also need to say soberly, amen, we recognize that the enemy is active and evil. 
And so one of the things that I, I, I like to do when I cover a passage like this is to just give you an opportunity to assess your life in the coming hours, maybe days, and say, are there any open doors in my life that are allowing things to come into my life, things to come into my spouse's life, my children's life, my parents' life, the church life? Are, are there open doors that maybe everybody else in society doesn't mind opening, but have I allowed those, and who is it affecting in my home? And so this little girl, to whatever extent a child can be, innocent, naive, vulnerable, and yet somebody opened a door and darkness slipped into that family and this girl's being ravaged to the point where this didn't happen the day before probably. This is an ongoing thing. So here's the circumstantial brokenness of this woman. She can't do anything about it. Uh, you come up against the, the demonic realm in your own strength, you will lose every time. And if, if you're ever going to win the battle, there must be one stronger than those that are in the demonic and satanic realm. And the only ones that I read of in the Bible that are in and of themselves stronger is God himself, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the angelic armies. But then also all of us who are rooted and walking in the Spirit and living in the holiness of God and obedience and consecration to God, we can take authority over that also. But this woman didn't have any of that. So she's like a, a ping pong ball being batted back and forth. So go down with me into verses 23 and 24. Though she is a woman with a desperate heart, she sees an opportunity when Jesus and the disciples come in town, and we see that she becomes a woman with a determined heart. This is where I love Mama Bear. I mean, I just, there, there are things that, the, the most intense times I've ever seen, my sweet, meek, gentle little wife. Two times, two, two situations. When she's bringing the children into the world, man, don't mess with her. I mean, I see my wife growl and, I'm going to get this baby out of me. I mean, it's like the Incredible Hulk. And, and when the babies come forth and then they get a little older, the only other time I see her act like that is when somebody messes with one of her kids. And ladies, that was your opportunity. You say, amen, there you go. And so this mama bear is about to say, I got to go and do whatever I need to do so that my daughter finds her deliverance. Now this is where things get interesting. So as she comes to Jesus, remember, she's crying out, help me, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Your enemy has a hold of my daughter. Jesus had already cast out a bunch of demons. Jesus had already ministered to Gentiles. And so we, we see that this is not a, a situation that has zero precedent. But look at this. First test she faced in her broken circumstance, in her burdened heart, what was it? The test of silence. The Bible says... Jesus did not answer her a word. He didn't even acknowledge her. Now, how does that fit with your theology? Because, I mean, I learned in Sunday school, Jesus is always nice. Jesus is always smiling. Jesus is here to make me happy. Jesus is here to make, wipe my tears away. Jesus is here to pick me up when I'm sad and carry me around. I, I learned all that great theology in Sunday school. Nobody ever told me that. Sometimes when you pray to Jesus, he just goes quiet on you. And he does. Now, it doesn't change his character. It doesn't invalidate his goodness. So we know he's good, but he's quiet. I need him to say something, but he's not talking to me. I need an answer, but he's just, uh, it, I mean, can I say it? He's ignoring her. Now remember, she doesn't have any claim to an entrance to him. And I would love to say, yeah, it's because she's a Gentile. But friends, I'm going to tell you, experience lets me know that there are times when I'm talking to him. And I do have an entrance with him because his blood is on my life. And I, the Bible says, call unto me and I'll show you great and mighty things that you don't know. And so I have all these promises and then sometimes I'll talk to him and, and I, I promise you it's like he's just not paying attention. Now, I'm sure y'all never experienced that in your own private walk, but I have. She faced, faced the test of silence. Let me just make a bold statement here. A lot of Christians never get beyond this test. He doesn't answer quickly. He doesn't answer in the way that they presume he ought to answer. He doesn't answer at all. And maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's five weeks, maybe it's five months, five years. But they just say, oh, he's, he's not listening to me. And they quit. But not this lady. She passes this first test, but then she faces the second test because when he's silent long enough, let me tell you what piggybacks on that test. It's the test of fear. 
Because when he's quiet and he's not moving and he's not answering, that's when we get really unsettled. Especially if we're facing something extreme like, like she was facing. When the clock's ticking and Lord, I'm, I know you're, you're good at the Hail Marys in the last seconds of the fourth quarter, but you might be able to throw it. I don't think I can catch it. I need you to do something right now. And so she comes to this test of fear. Look in verse 23. So watch this. The disciples, God bless them, they came and begged Jesus saying, send her away. She is crying out after us. Now, if you're her, how do you feel your odds are right now? Because the one, the only one that can help you is ignoring you, and you're just going after it. You're not stopping. I love that, that she's just continuing to call out. Jesus still isn't answering. And then the disciples actually get sick of it. And so here come the Christians. Here come the Christians, and they're saying, Lord, we're trying to relax. Lord, we're trying to enjoy some time with you. And she is really busting up the worship service. Can you please just get her out of here? Now, some commentators give the disciples the benefit of the doubt, and they're saying, Lord, why don't you just go ahead and and meet her need and just send her on her precious little way? Jesus, just snap your fingers, deliver the child so we can get some peace and quiet around here. I'm a skeptic. I'm just thinking they're saying, Lord, will you please just shut her up? I don't care if you deliver the girl. She's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. We shouldn't even be in this town. And, 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 they're, and, and So what do we do with that? Or, or what's the parallel of that in our lives? Well, that's when you're praying and you're doing everything you can do to hold on to the hope that God's going to come through. And then one of your Christian friends comes in and takes you by the hand and says, you know, you've been praying a long time about that. Why don't you just go ahead and understand God's probably, he's not going to do it. And let's just, let's praise him anyhow. Let's just praise him in here. And something you're pressing into, and a Christian who wasn't invited to speak to the situation comes in and literally, either intentionally or unintentionally, backs you off of what you're trying to press into. And that's exactly what the disciples do. So where does the fear come in? Here's the fear of being rejected. Forgive me, she's rejected by the church. There's only 12 of them, but they're being rejected by the church, being ignored by Jesus. I'm going to tell you, passing the test of silence is rare. Passing this next level is even more rare. Because there's nothing going on around her in this moment that is giving her any hope. As a matter of fact, it seems to be extracting hope. If she had a crutch, it just got kicked out from under her. Because now it's 13 against 1 in her mind. you got Jesus and 12 guys that are basically saying no. Um, God does say no sometimes. I, I do find that. David, King David, wanted to build God a temple. King David started going after it, making plans and everything. He had the backing of Nathan the prophet. Nathan said, hey, that's a great thing on your heart. Go ahead and do it. Then Nathan goes back home for his evening prayer time, and God looks at Nathan and says, why did you tell him that? I don't want him building that house. Go back and tell him that he can't build it. So Nathan has to go back and says, David, I got it wrong. You're not to build the house. God says no. There are other times in Scripture where the Lord says no. Sometimes He says it to people that wanted to go out in military raids for His glory, and they would petition them, and they would say, Lord, do we go or do we not go? And they've got their sword ready, and they're about to jump out and and head off, and God says, no, I don't want you doing it. Sometimes God says no. We get that. But I believe sometimes we hear Him say no when He hasn't said it. I believe sometimes we are so predisposed to the idea that God is not for us that we have a very difficult time believing that he's just trying to do something through the delay, and instead of receiving it as a delay, we assume it's a denial. And friends, I want to tell you something. I've I've been guilty of this, that, that the delay... I say, okay, well, I don't I trouble not the master. I don't, I don't want to bother him anymore. I guess maybe I was presumptuous in thinking my breakthrough would come or my answer would come or my rescue would come or my provision would come. And then you've got a chorus of people singing in minor chords around you saying, no, 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 no. And, and, and you've got negativity coming at you. And finally, it's just really hard to believe. Um, I don't want you to raise your hand, but I, I would assume some hands would be raised. How many of you have learned as you've grown in, in the Christian life they're just some things you don't share with other people because they just don't have an ounce of affirmation in them. Some people have the gift of, Bleh. I mean, it's just like, I mean, they do. It's like, you know, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, and they try, and it's like, Bleh. 
It's like, no, a joyful noise. I mean, they don't know what to do. They just can't work up anything within them that believes God is actually really good and really loves his children and really isn't some ogre up in heaven just kind of indiscriminately throwing bad things our way. And I don't know how you were raised spiritually. I don't know how you were raised in your family, but I know one thing. When God wants to deepen your trust, he sometimes does it in unorthodox ways. We assume that he gives us, if, if he gives us everything we want when we want it, we assume that our faith will grow. Probably not, but our presumption will. Our presumption will grow. We'll be like spoiled kids who were never told no in their life. And so when God wants to help us to understand that we need him more than we need something or that thing from him, sometimes he'll delay the thing in order to do what? To get us to press into him despite the odds. That's what's going on right here with her. She's not even a believer, but she's, she's moving into Jesus here. So she faces the test of fear. She faces the test of silence. And then in verse 24, she's going to face the test of hopelessness. This, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, I would have bailed on verse 24. I would have turned around and walked back home. I promise you I would have. He answered. Here he finally says something. Maybe he's looking right at her, but listen to what he says. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I don't know about you. That sounds like a no to me. She is well aware that she's a Canaanite. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She's not a descendant of Abraham. She has no claim whatsoever into the work of the Messiah, although Jesus had already been working among Gentiles. And, And by the way, it's Matthew's gospel that shows you so much of Jesus interacting with Gentiles. I mean, the Great Commission is fine, you know, that big Titan verse, Matthew 28, and it talks about taking the gospel to the whole world. And yet, Jesus's initial ministry was to offer the kingdom to the Jews primarily. Uh, and, and, and the gospel was to be given to them. Now, what you're seeing in the earlier chapters of Matthew is those very same Jewish people are saying no to him. They don't want him to be the Messiah. Their leaders are refusing him, rejecting him, challenging him, plotting to kill him. And so, as the gospels extend, and especially into the book of Acts, you see clearly that what started in a seed form being offered to the Jews then begins to blossom. But Jesus is establishing here the pattern of the ministry that the Father sent him for, and that was to offer the kingdom to the Jews first. So, here's a Gentile woman, and she's trying to pull messianic claims by calling him the son of David. And Jesus just reestablishes verbally. He says, you need to know that my mission is to the Hebrews. I'm sent to gather that flock together. How should she read that? Let's do a little survey. Come on, honesty time. How many of you, I've already confessed what I would have done. How many of you would have said, yeah, I don't think I could have pressed in through that. Raise your hand if that would have been you. Well, the rest of you, I want to hang with you. I want your faith rubbing off on me because I'm just being honest with you. I, I would have taken that as a rejection. Maybe it's that little orphan spirit sliver that runs through us and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I shouldn't have asked that. I'm, I'm sorry, I've, I've offended you. And, and you just, it's, it's a reaffirmation of um, your sense of unworthiness. And that comes, comes at us from all these angles, you know, for a hundred, a host of different reasons. We feel like God's just looking for a reason to refuse us. Uh, I, I have to fast and pray in the spirit for that kind of um, uh, attitude not to come back into my life. Because I, I lived that way for the first 24 years of my life. And then even after I became a Christian, I still struggled with the fact that, yeah, God would judicially tolerate me. And I suppose he theologically loved me, but I was pretty convinced he couldn't stand me. And so it, it has taken years of walking with Jesus to where I can, I can say this, hey, don't be offended. Not only does God love me, I actually think he likes me. I actually think the Lord enjoys me, not because I'm all that great, but just because it's in God's nature to really enjoy his kids. And so, so she's coming in, and, and so we figure, okay, she probably took her ball and went home. Let me give you something right here. He said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let me tell you something. Jesus did not say no. He just hadn't said yes yet. 
And the absence of an affirmed, clear yes does not necessarily equal a no. Sometimes when he doesn't say yes, it should be interpreted as not now. It can be interpreted as wait. Maybe it does end up becoming a no, but until he says no, don't ascribe to him a denial. I've I've been praying for things that have been on my prayer list for years. And there are seasons where I say, he's just not going to do it. I've got got a lady on my prayer list that I've been praying for 21 years for her to be saved, for her to be delivered, for her to have her awakening. And quite frankly, it looks less likely now than it did when I first started praying it. But he hasn't said no. So what do I do? I'm just pressing in despite the odds. I'm moving in. Some of us, when we're thinking about healing, uh, we have a need for healing in my family. Been praying for it for five years almost to the week. And it's not come. But God has never once ever said, Jeff, quit praying about that. But the answer hasn't come. And so what do we do? Well, we're doing what she's doing. God draws our faith out of us. He draws our hunger as he deepens them. He knows how much I really want it, but I probably don't know how much I really want it until I have to come to that crossroads where I'm faced with either pressing in or turning back. And some of us are going to find these places repeatedly in our lives. And it's easy to quit. You don't have to have any skill to quit. You, you, and, and listen, sometimes God will move in such a way that you, you discern, okay, he's closing one chapter in something and opening another. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something in your hour of desperation where God has not said no, but for whatever reason, whether we're weary and well-doing or we don't want to face the final rejection from him or it hurts too much to have it prayed again and not answered, we quit. And I, I, I really believe that a lot of breakthroughs and blessings were probably just around the corner from that moment we quit. I can't prove that, neither can you, because you never got there. But I do know one thing for sure. There have been plenty of times where I've wanted to quit, and I didn't quit, and I did go around the corner, and there it was. There was the breakthrough and blessing. So he didn't say no, but he had not said yes yet. So what does she do? Well, you already read the passage. You know what she does, but let's pretend like we're following the story. She, she is then seen in verses 25 and 26 and 27 as a woman with a discerning heart. First of all, she understood that there were no other options. Look at verse 25. I love her. I want her to be my professor again in seminary. She came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. No religious jargon, no son of David, nothing overly religious about what she's saying, no explanation. And literally, she comes and changes her physical posture. So at first, she was at a distance. She sees Jesus coming. She moves in. She presses in. Then she cries out. She presses in a little further. He ignores her. Then he seemingly sets up some terms that say, you're not going to get your prayer answered because I'm, I'm, I'm coming to the Jews and you don't qualify. And so what does she do? She doesn't quit. She doesn't get discouraged. She doesn't back off. She, she is doing something that most of us as Christians won't even do. I mean, she is bold with Jesus. And she gets down on her knees and, she, and you can just hear it. She's like, Lord, help me. I don't know that any two words have been more effective in the prayer lives of Christians throughout the course of the church, history of the church than those two words, help me. There is something about the heart of God that seems to move at some point when that help me is saturated with a moment of absolute surrender and faith And it meets the opportune moment that God has defined, and something crystallizes, and that help me turns into a, you got it. Say, Jeff, give me the formula for that. Man, if I had the formula for that, good, not alive. There is no formula. Why? Because let me tell you something. The whole purpose of Jesus' silence to her, the whole purpose of his initial statement to her was not to ruin her, It was to serve as a catalyst to reveal what was in her. 
See, these kind of trials and difficulties don't make or break us. You've heard that said before. They just reveal where we already are. So she got to find out that she had something that she didn't even know how to describe. And so she's kneeling before him and she says, Lord, help me. Now that's going to get him, right? That's going to get him. Jesus is going to say, ooh, you got it. He doesn't. Look at what he does. She understood that there was no entitlement. Listen to his answer. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let's read that again. He didn't say that, did he? It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I don't know, and this is my opinion, you don't have to sign off on this, I don't know that there's a more uncomfortable encounter with the Savior anywhere in Scripture. This doesn't sound like Jesus to me. It doesn't. But it is. And I want to tell you something. We don't interpret his character based on what he's doing here. We have to interpret the verse in light of his character. His character is good, holy, perfect, loving, and trustworthy. So he's not doing anything wrong. So I have to go back and say, well, I understand that you're good. What I don't understand is how this statement contextualizes itself in your goodness. How, how can you say this and it be a good thing? Let me, let me help you ex- understand just a little bit of the dynamics here. You, you can slice it any way you want. The, the, the Hebrews, the Jews at that time, their, their epithet for the Gentiles it was culturally, it was socially, it was all the time, it was uh, their dogs. Now, there's two different words in the New Testament for dogs. One describes the scavenger, mongrel, mangy dogs that run about the hillside. That's not the word Jesus used. He uses the word for like a house dog, a little puppy, uh, a sweet little domesticated dog. But he still called her a dog. I mean, he did. Nobody's going to say, oh, thank you. (laughs) But she understood the cultural, social, and religious context. Let me tell you something. Jesus just threw up the biggest barrier to her. Why? One, he's sovereign and omniscient. He knows she can scale that wall. He knows it. He's not casting something in front of her that he knows that she can't deal with. So in his wisdom and love, he put a challenge in front of this woman that he knows she can overcome. What she doesn't know is if she can overcome it. And she'll never know it unless he tests her with it. And so he puts it right in front of her and he he just puts it out there. He talks like every other Hebrew talks to Gentiles. And he says, I can't take away the blessing from my Jewish countrymen and give it to you, a Gentile. Now look at this, because I'm going to tell you something. I was already gone. I was already back home crying and mad, but not her. Look at this. She understood that she had nothing to bargain with. So look at her statement in verse 27. She said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Hello. She didn't say, I'm not a dog. Who do you think you're talking to? You you owe me. You healed all those people down the road. You helped those people. You fed them and you, you did all of this stuff and now it's my turn. You owe me. She didn't have that in her. By the way, make sure that's not in you. Let me make sure that's not in me. Because it's real easy to slip into this mindset, especially in our generation where, good night alive, everybody thinks they're owed something. And the theological fact of the matter is there's only one thing you deserve. You want to tell me what that is? You deserve hell. Aren't you glad you came on a Wednesday? That is all we deserve. We only deserve hell. We've earned it. And we write it on a big fat check. We deserve it. We earned every bit of it because we're sinners. We are sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice. We've violated the, we've committed treason against a holy, benevolent, good God because we rebelled against him. He gave us commandments. We've broken most of them. And inherently on our own, we're savagely selfish. We're self-oriented. We're focused. We're, we're fearful. We're self-protected. We're suspicious of the Lord. That's apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. That's us on our own. The Bible uses a word called depravity. And, and it's a theological term, and it just describes that we're just really messed up to the core. So we're not, we're, we're not entitled to anything. Unfortunately, one of the biggest things that we have to overcome in life is that sense of entitlement. 
And we actually get offended at God for stuff that happens to every human being on the earth, but there's something within us. I can't believe that he'd let that happen. Um, She didn't have any of that. She didn't argue with God, with the Son of God, about the terminology. She actually seems to affirm the understanding that as a Gentile in the kingdom, she does have no rightful access. She, she almost seems to say, yeah, I'm a dog. And that doesn't go along with, you know, the self-help course that you took. They'll tell you, no, you're going to, listen, we're not talking about self-help. We're talking about brokenness and humility. What's more important, her reputation before Jesus or her demon-possessed daughter? You see, and in the moment, this is such a, a beautiful mother's heart, just a beautiful person's heart. And she's not even redeemed. I mean, I I get fed up with that. Y'all forgive me for processing. I know I've mentioned myself a few times in this, but I I just see so much weakness in me when I'm comparing myself to this pagan woman. And and I'm I'm like, she's got more brokenness, humility, and, and determination to get her breakthrough from Jesus as an unregenerate pagan Gentile than sometimes we do as Christians. She presses in with more expectation as a lost person than we do as saved people. She seems to have more confidence that if she just pesters the Son of God enough, that eventually he's going to acquiesce. You know, we don't like to think of prayer that way. I don't know. I don't have it figured out. I've swung on all the sides of the pendulum. I remember when I first started out and prayer was easy. Just ask God and he'll do it. And in those infant days of my my walk with Jesus, man, all my prayers seem to get answered. And I look back on that now. It's like, yeah, he's teaching me to come to him and he's teaching me. But then as he wanted to stretch my faith, he'd pull a Matthew 15 on me. I'd go back with that same formula. I ask, I seek, I knock, and then he opens and receive. And, and suddenly that formula quit working and I had to start seeking him more diligently. I had to leave off asking for the blessing and just saying, hey, what's going on with my heart with you? And so eventually the formulas are removed from us and we have to face the fact that Um, he will delay our request in order to develop our hearts. And so it ultimately boils down, what do we want? Do we want a developed intimacy with Jesus more, or do we just want this thing? And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I just want my thing. I I have told the Lord many times, Lord, I know what you're doing here. I've read Matthew 15. I I know what you are up to right now. It's right there. I've preached this. This is my third time. I know what you are doing. And I'll just be honest with you, Lord. We'll get to that intimacy and growth thing later. But right now, I need you to take care of business on this prayer thing. Am I being too transparent? You're like, why are you pastoring us, man? I mean, (laughs) you're carnal, Jeff. No, I'm just kind of giving expression to what you didn't know was going on in your mind and heart at times. So she, she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. I will say this, at least in Jesus' illustration, she's not a dog out on the hillside, a scavenger. She is in the master's house. She is in the proximity of the table. She's not seated at the table. But there does seem to be a slight open door to where in the illustration that Jesus gave, She's there closer to him. And she just soaks up what she can get and she says, all right, if y'all are eating and I'm in the room, I don't expect you to place the T-bone on the floor. But Lord, I'm just saying, I, I know I don't deserve anything. I think a scrap from you will heal my daughter and deliver her. No entitlement whatsoever, nothing to bring, nothing to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And she was totally broken and surrendered. And so let's get down to the last verse and uh, we'll just let the Holy Spirit work in our hearts a little bit and massage this. She's a woman with a displayed heart. Now he's going to talk. I love this. Her displayed heart, her faith is put on display. Then Jesus answered her. I can just see the clouds moving out and the sun getting blue, uh, sky getting blue. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. This is why I love this. Watch me with this. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribe, the 
the religious gurus who had the most access to the best information had no faith. None. They're trying to kill Jesus. That's no faith. The disciples, he said more than once, the disciples, the ones he called in closely to him, the disciples, he said, you have a little faith. Oh, you have little faith. He kind of gets on them sometimes trying to develop them. You, you don't believe me enough. You don't believe me enough. And to a pagan Canaanite woman who has a demon-possessed daughter and nothing to offer the kingdom, who's pressed into him against every barrier, refusing to retreat, he looks at her at the end of the test and he says, you have got some awesome faith. You have great faith. Do you know how many times Jesus said that in the Gospels? Do you know both times he said it, it was to a Gentile? It was to an outcast. I, I just, I promise you, I never say this. I just got shivers running from my toes to my head because what I'm realizing is this. It's not about your geography. It's not about your family. It's not about your training. It's not about your pedigree. It's not about your past. It's not about who's for you. It's not even about who's against you. If you and I will press in despite the odds, I believe no matter what he does on the back end of the equation, when we keep pressing in, he's looking at us and he's saying, your faith is admirable. And I'm going to tell you, pleasing him is more important than me getting what I want. But this lady got both. She got both. Can you imagine stepping across the threshold into glory? Our precious friend, Judy Charles, for whom we interceded, fasted, prayed, anointed with oil. I, I just believed God was going to perform a miracle. She left earth today. She's with her master right now. She's with him, and I believe that somewhere in that moment, I can't prove this, but I believe that as she died and, and was real about her physical struggle and was real about the, the ups and downs of cancer and all of that, as, as she crosses over completely free, completely victorious, believe me, she's enjoying victory a lot more than any of us are right now. And I do believe that when the Lord saw her, he puts an affirmation on her endurance and pressing in. She did not stop pressing in. Full surrender. Did not get the outcome I wanted. But you know what? I, I hardly could say I feel cheated when I think about where she is right now. I, I, I want to cross over and I want to hear Jesus, if, if I can risk saying this, Jeff, you trusted me. You did good. Not Jeff, wow, great sermons. Not, hey, wow, you really made an impact in your generation. In the end, it's not about what we do, it's about who we are with him. And to be able to hear from the Son of God, hey, you, 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 you kept doing it, you kept enduring. Enter into your rest, son, come on. Good night, makes me want to go tonight. It does. Just to see him and hear that. And so we're down here and we're scrambling for all the stuff and we get all tied in knots and everything. And ultimately, in, in these moments, and you're seeing it right now, the trick is to keep it live in you when you walk out the doors. You're, you're, you and I are seeing that really, actually, all we really want to do is, is to bring pleasure to the heart of the Son of God. That's really it. I just, I want to make you happy, Jesus. Forgive me if that, that doesn't sound overly theological, but what would top that? What would top bringing pleasure to the heart of the one who lived and died and rose and is coming again for you? I can't think of anything in this moment. So he says, great is your faith. Let me give you two things about why her faith was great. It was great due to what she lacked. She didn't have anything to stand on. No national covenants. No individual promises. Jesus didn't say, if you trust me, I'll do it. He never said anything. He almost seemed to say, not going to happen. I mean, it, he didn't, but it, would have been, it could have been interpreted that way. And there was no exposure to the truth that we know of. I mean, she's a Canaanite for crying out loud. She's not going to synagogue. She's not in the temple. She doesn't have all this exposure. So her faith was great due to what she lacked, and her faith was also great due to what she possessed. What was that? Insight. There was something, maybe it's a sovereign work of God's grace that opened her eyes to this opportunity, but she had insight. She was humble. She was resilient. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I believe, for me anyway, this is the key. Never quit. Never give up. Press in. You say, well, Jeff, what if it doesn't happen? 
Well, so quitting is going to make it happen? Remember the time where Jesus looked at his disciples because he had preached a sermon that intentionally thinned out the crowd? It was the, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood sermon. And everybody said, we won't be coming back next Sabbath. And they left. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, are y'all going to go away too? And Peter speaks up and says, go where? Where would we go? You're the one who has the words of life. So, friends, when we, when we back off and when we, we, we stop pressing in because of all the stuff that is um, coming against our confidence and our trust, it's, it's, we, we rarely think beyond the moment of releasing and quitting. We rarely think, well, wh- where do we actually go from here? And so, I, I don't know, man. I, maybe I'm just a, you know, kind of like Shrek, you know, just n- not overly complex in my thinking, but I'm like, I would just rather press in and risk that I don't get what I'm looking for than to retreat and not get what I'm looking for. And so the last thing is this, and and we're just going to pray. Her favor is put on display. (laughs) These are the words. I mean, she, she, she worked. She worked for these words. I mean, she did. She didn't earn them, but she had to kill herself. She had to die to herself in order to hear verse 28 when he said, be it done for you as you desire. He, he, He only said a couple of things to her. First, the couple of things were like, not looking good for you. You're a Gentile. I'm here for the Jews. And then the second thing was, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to take this good stuff that's meant for the Hebrews and cast it down to a Gentile dog. And she's just unfazed. And then the next thing he says is, you have got some incredible faith. So, you know, her hope had an uptick there. And then the last thing he said, very simply says, you know what? Just as you've asked, you got it. That was it. No big, okay, where is thine daughter? You know, it wasn't anything like that. It was just like, I mean, it's almost like they, he wasn't, I know he loved the little girl wherever she was, but he's actually just dealing with this woman. And he's like, you got it. I mean, I'm not about to let that kind of persistence go unrewarded. You've got it. She had nothing to stand on, no entitlement, and she got exactly what she came for. She just didn't get it quickly. And the Bible says in that hour, her daughter was completely healed. Now, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you haven't gotten your healing, it's because you don't have faith. You did not hear me say that. I'm not even saying that if you have faith, you are going to get your healing. Now, I'd be very careful never to tell you to give up. I I never tell people to give up on healing. I, I mean, honestly, Jesus would have to appear to me in bodily form to tell me to quit praying for healing And even then, I would probably wonder if it was him because I see consistently in Scripture. Let me give you this. I said I was done. I'm almost done. I'm out of time. If you were never trained theologically, if nobody ever taught you, but you were saved and you had the Holy Spirit and you had a completed copy of God's Word and you read through that Bible for a year and that's all you did, You just read and read and read and learned and learned and learned. And nobody taught you, just the Scriptures. And you close that Bible. When you close that Bible, do you think you would come away saying, God heals or God doesn't heal? That Bible is to frame up our belief system. Not the best intended person that ever taught us. That Bible teaches me that Jehovah Rapha is a healer. He's connected it to his identity, his name. So we press in. Now, there's a thousand questions that splinter off from that commitment. I don't have all the nice, neat, tidy religious answers. I know one thing. I can't find anywhere in the Scripture that says you pray for thus and thus amount of time and then you quit if it doesn't happen. So whether if it's healing, whether it's a need for breakthrough, whether it's an issue of a a child, a grandchild, or a loved one that seems to be under the influence of Satan, demonically controlled, Press in despite the odds. Don't quit. Why? Because he's still the God of breakthrough. And breakthrough sometimes comes right around the corner just before you're tempted at the highest level to give up.